our morale was a lot better than at Verdun, for except when the ration carriers were killed, we could eat when we needed to. Moreover, we felt that here we led the dance, not the Germans, as at Verdun. Gaston Lefebvre, French Army, the Somme, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 17, The Psalm, The Grind, Part 2. So, we need to start off the week with a couple of admin notes. First, again, a very hearty thanks to all of you for the recent reviews on iTunes. You guys have been very kind, and it is greatly appreciated These reviews really do help the podcast get more visibility on iTunes, which helps us reach more and more listeners out there. Thank you. And if you've been thinking of submitting a review but weren't sure if it was the right time, here's my take on it. The time for writing a review on iTunes is like the time for grilling Brazilian picanha. It is always the right time. Also, Listener Jack sent a comment through the website on a very important matter that I was neglecting and rather unaware of. I will use Jack's own words here. Quote, please God stop pronouncing lieutenant the way it's spelled and the way Americans pronounce it, which I don't criticize. It's lieutenant in the British and Commonwealth armies. Unquote. So this is really one of the best emails I've received in a while, and I really do apologize, as I have been totally blanking on that specific pronunciation of the word. Jack was so good as to send a Cambridge dictionary link that gives both the American and the British pronunciations, and he kindly pointed out that officers holding that rank would like to be called lieutenant. I really do appreciate these reminders and corrections, I believe that a huge part of telling history here on the BFWWP involves getting the names and pronunciations down correctly. Thank you, Jack, and I'm glad that you have enjoyed both the Psalm and the Verdun episodes. I also want to give a shout out to the World War I Diggers Stories podcast. If you enjoyed the last two episodes on the fight for Pozier Ridge, please go and check out episodes 2.19, 2.20, and 2.21 on the Digger Stories podcast. As of the release of this episode, 2.21 was the latest Digger Stories available, and it was covering the Australian experience of the song through the diaries of a participant, a man named... Percy Smythe. The lively readings make the diaries come alive. It's as if you were in the time and sitting with the author in an estaminet, drinking whatever you could afford that day and listening to his stories. Well done podcast, Mr. Monell. 
And now, let's get back into the trenches, or more accurately, our battered, filthy, and muddy shell hole lines. When we last sipped Muddy Pinard with the Poilus, it was in episode 11, and the date was around the 10th of July. The French had reached the outskirts of Peron itself, south of the Somme, and their advance was ground to a halt along the line of the La Maisonnette compound to the scorched and splintered trees of the Bois Blaise to the village of Biache. Peron, across the sluggish waters of the Somme, was one of the coveted prizes on which the French 6th Army had set its sights on liberating. But the French had gotten bogged down as German resistance had stiffened dramatically and the Poilus now found themselves hemmed into a salient under constant artillery fire. Much of that fire was being directed from Mont-Saint-Quentin, a hill an excellent artillery observation post that lay behind Peron. In the day, movement in the French lines was the kiss of death. German artillery was starting to rub out significant numbers of French artillery batteries located in the Flaucourt Plateau, the area the French had taken in the first days of the Somme Offensive. Morale amongst the troops was plummeting with the fatalistic Le Cafard infecting the men in the trenches. But the French weren't helpless, and while they were losing gunners and grunts at a brutal pace, they responded with the dreaded drum fire under which so many Germans cracked or were simply obliterated. William Philpot notes in Bloody Victory that French artillery bombardments seemed particularly destructive seemingly wiping the target area of any defenders, as well as any recognizable physical features. Philpott also muses that it is perhaps this environment that planted the seed of J.R.R. Tolkien's Mordor, the dark and blasted land of Sauron and the orcs in the Lord of the Rings story. But whether that was the case or not, the French were incorporating the lessons learned at Verdun. Cannons conquer. Infantry occupies. Evidence of these horrific bombardments comes from a German reserve Leutnant Gruber, who was hunkering down for dear life south of the Somme at Estray. Twelve of us were wedged into a narrow slit trench in a very weak dugout that was barely splinter-proof and so low and narrow that it was hardly possible to sit upright in it. Silent and resigned, we sat it out as fire of all calibers roared overhead. It increased from about 4 p.m. and by evening it was simply terrible. The fire crept nearer until a shell landed one meter away from the dugout entrance, spattering us in the face with earth and splinters of rock. We were deafened by the fire, terribly tired and indifferent to our fate. Wedged in tight with our knees drawn up, we waited for nightfall and entertained ourselves by discussing dying. Whenever a shell landed nearby, we felt a blow on our backs, but everything continued to fall beyond us. 
In the unbelievably stifling July heat, there was not a drop to drink. For days, therefore, thirst meant that we had not eaten anything either. My faithful batman, Wolf, hauled a carboy of tea from the field kitchen for three hours through the heat and the fire. Blue in the face and bathed in sweat, he had just arrived on our hill when the carboy was smashed by a shell splinter and the precious liquid ran away. He was determined, however, that the men had to have something to drink, so he returned once more, and this time was more successful. Every man received a carefully measured beaker of tea. A direct hit crushed the dugout where one of my machine guns, the one commanded by Unteroffizier Kramer, was kept for safety. Several men of the infantry battalion were killed. Some were buried alive and the gun was put out of action by earth and sand. Ignoring the continuing heavy fire, Kramer and his men set about rescuing the buried men. In this, they were successful then, despite the fire. They stripped down their machine gun, cleaned it, and set about getting ready for action. After a few hours, they were able to report that it was back in working order, which delighted us all, because we felt that the enemy would soon be coming. The French 6th Army, under the gruff and no-nonsense General Fayol, pressed on. Fayol, together with General Sir Henry Rawlinson of the BEF's 4th Army north of the river, did try to work together tactically and strategically, but many times local issues prevented better cooperation. British failures didn't help either. The French army was simply more advanced in terms of infantry tactics and infantry artillery coordination needed for this particular type of warfare. They damn well should have been too. Since 1914, France's military leadership on the whole had been wasteful of its men's lives so they should have something to show for it. Tactics at Verdun were developing new methods of infantry warfare. Lessons were learned from the elite German Sturmtruppen. But the French were also putting into effect the use of highly mobile groups of specially trained infantrymen. The biggest tactical lessons being learned was that of infantry artillery coordination in particular the use of the creeping barrage. The British were beginning to use it in a rudimentary way, as we saw the timed lifts at Pozières. But the French were going all in with it. The artillery blasted and burned away resistance just ahead of the assaulting Poilus, and it was by and large working. Gone for the most part were the days of mass human waves and reckless assaults. The French watched British infantry attacks with continual eye rolls and the, dis the disgusted shaking of heads. But while Fayol and his French 6th Army were determined to keep pushing on, the Germans were ever active. They delivered a stinging setback in the form of a counterattack aimed at the ruins of Biash village across the Somme from Peron. During the attack on the 15th of July, half of the village fell back under German boots. Over the course of the next few days, 
the rest of Biash, the Boisbleys, and La Maisonnette were all torn from Poilu's dirtied and bloodied hands in bitter fighting. Fayol countered the local German successes with an attack south of the Somme, from Barleu to Vermandovillet. Pushing on these villages were the 1st CAC, Colonial Troops, and the 35th CA. The 16th DIC, Division d'Infanterie Colonielle, would strike at Barleau, while the Frenchmen of the 35th Army Corps would assault Soyecourt and Vermandovillet. It was another bitter and grueling fight. The men of the 16th DIC were exhausted, having been in the line under constant shellfire for days already. These unceasingly tough colonial troops sliced through the thinly held German front line only to be massacred at the second trench line. 35th Corps d'Armée's attack failed with Poilu's grinding forwards to take half of Soyecourt and the nearby Bois-Étoile. Progress on the Somme was bogging down, but it was continuing. The German general von Galwitz, commanding south of the river, was throwing in his men in small detachments in order to drag out the defense of the battlefield and wear out the attackers. Of course, he was wearing out his army as well. On the other side, Fayol knew this, but also knew that the Somme was too big for just his 6th Army. Shouldering the line to the south was General Joseph Alfred Michelet's French 10th Army. They now came into the fight and extended the battlefront all the way south to Chili. The 6th Army was starting to show the strain of weeks of intense battle. Indeed, the men of the French army were beginning to show the strain of weeks, months, and years of war. Ominous events occurred. At Biache, a French counterattack by the 2nd Division d'Infanterie Colonial failed with heavy casualties. When alerted for a new attack, a battalion of colonial troops refused to march to the front line. They didn't want to be killed for nothing. A few days later, another infantry company did the same thing for the same reasons. This collective refusal to serve was new, and it was incredibly dangerous. For now, these incidents remained the only ones, but French officers were on alert. Psalm Offensive ground on. On the German side, the battle claimed another artistic voice, that of Reinhard Sorge. On the 20th of July, Sorge was severely injured in an accident involving grenades just behind the front line at Ablencourt, south of the Somme, and he died soon after. Reinhard Johannes Sorge, the middle name cognomen taken as proof of devotion to John the Baptist and Roman Catholicism, was already a name in the world of German Expressionism. In 1912, at just 20 years old, 
Sorge had won the Kleist Prize for the play he'd written a few months earlier, named Der Bettler, or The Beggar. When the war started, Sorge was on his way to becoming a priest, having had a deep mystical conversion to the Catholic faith a couple years prior. Young Reinhardt had declared that, quote, My pen has been and forever will be only Christ's stylus until my death, unquote. Despite his religious convictions, he found himself in the mud and blood of Flanders by fall of 1915, leaving a young wife back home. Sorga appears to have been much like so many others caught up in the war, although here more willingly than others. Of the war, he wrote, quote, I suppose it is the imperfection of it all that I feel, and then the longing for our life together breaks through. But soon my soul is soothed and consoled by the conviction that this period has to be, that without it, there can be no perfection, unquote. That summer day in the ruins of a small French commune, bleeding out from his grenade-shredded legs, I wonder if... Reinhard Sorge found his perfection. As a postscript, Sorge's play Der Bettler was released on stage on December 23, 1917, to critical acclaim. Sorge's style of lighting and staging were what really made his play unique for that time, and it is a shame he did not live to see it. The lamps were indeed being extinguished all over the world. To the north, Fayol and his French 6th Army set their gun sights on the front from Maurepas to Clary, southeast of Guillemont. The French were now well into their pattern. This area was being hammered brutally by the artillery in preparation for a fast-paced infantry assault behind a creeping barrage. After the assault and, if successful, the capture of a targeted position, the key consolidation phase would begin so the Poilus could withstand the mandatory counterattacks by the Frontschwein. Once those were machine-gunned to the plowed ground, there might be local attacks needed to secure a solid jump-off point for the next big attacks. Once all that was done, the guns would kick into high gear and start pounding the Germans out of existence again. The 7th Corps d'Armée, under the gaunt and bony-faced General Georges de Bazalère, took over north of the Somme. After a crushing bombardment, Frenchmen of the 153rd and 47th Infantry Divisions rushed for the trench line at the bottom of a steep ravine, the first step in clearing the way to Maurepas. The men of the 153rd made it, but in the center, the men of the 47th DI fell victim to heavy fire. On the left, west of Maurepas, a British supporting attack on Maltzhorn Farm failed. The fighting was brutal, as attested by German Oberleutnant Deyer, who was captured at Maripa by Poilus of the 153rd. 
Quote, After midday, we came under drum fire from all calibers of high explosive and gas shells. In a short while, we suffered heavy casualties. My dugout was quickly filled with dead and dying men. The enemy attacks in dense waves. I counted at least 10 of them at 50 meter intervals. After a short but heavy pounding with mortars, they quickly overran the 9th companies of Bavarian Reserve Infantry Regiments 22 and 23. To our front, the first wave closed to within 50 meters, but was halted by our heavy fire, flooded to the rear, and disappeared into shell holes. At the third attempt, they broke through, and thrusting into Maripas, exploited our left and right, bringing down machine gun fire on us and attacking us from the rear. Our casualties were heavy. Finally, the battle was being carried on by only four unwounded men. We were soon overwhelmed by the enemy." Unquote. Over the next days, the 47th Division slogged its way forward and took the ruins of M a village on the north bank of the Somme. The front line had moved forward about a kilometer. It was progress, slow and expensive in casualties. Rain now came down on the Somme, turning everything into a muddy morass. This is a key detail that I happened to uh, leave out of the Pozier Ridge episodes, and for that, I sincerely apologize. The next attacks came on the 30th of July, with the 20th Corps de Fer, the Iron Corps, taking over for Basilaire's 7th. The elite 11th and 39th DIs were back, and they went over the top after days of rainy setbacks and interrupted artillery bombardments. But they walked into a mess. They attacked in heavy fog, which kept Allied planes out of the sky and made ground visibility difficult. They also attacked an enemy who was spreading himself out thin and over a wider area. The Germans were rapidly adapting, keeping their frontline trenches lightly held and putting machine gun teams in shell holes between trench lines. This made it harder for the artillery to target an entire area where small groups of men huddled for their existence in the bottom of watery and body-filled shell holes. These conditions led the poilus of the Iron Corps to run into crisscrossed streams of bullets and a hailstorm of counter-barrage fire. The attack gained no ground whatsoever, with the surviving poilus having to crawl back to their jump-off trenches. More French troops were called in to the Somme battlefront. Over the next days, two more army corps marched into the front line. With the pressure off Verdun, more artillery was transferred to the Somme, and French gunners wasted no time in putting out devastating counter-battery fire as deadly as what they received. German artillery units were known to operate at three-quarter or two-thirds strength regularly as guns and their crews were being taken out all the time. 
The French kept pressing on throughout August of 1916, much like their British allies to the immediate north, but with the difference that they were somewhat successful. While the BEF hammered away at Delville Wood, Pozier, Highwood, and Guillemont, the French were at least pushing the front line forward over the broken corpses of the enemy. In the French sector, there was a redistributing of boundaries, with Fayol taking all operations north of the Somme and Michelet taking all operations south of the river. Between the 1st and the 11th of August, the French 6th Army scorched and scoured its own homeland with a terrible rain of iron and steel, clearing the M Plateau and Monacue Farm along the Somme. By the 12th of August, the German second line and the western half of Maurepas village had also fallen to grim-faced, mud-covered and haggard poilus. To the west, Guillemont held out against British efforts to take it. We'll be there soon ourselves, so keep that name in mind. The Battle of the Somme was fully underway. This is not to discount any action up to this point, and it is most certainly not to dismiss or lessen the British Empire's monstrous losses of the 1st of July. But the rhythm of this 141-day battle was that of constant gunfire, of long lines of men marching towards the fire and smoke and rumbling earth, of thinned ranks of ghosts returning, of dark storm clouds and mud-choked roads ill-suited for so much traffic. As a French officer was quoted in Philpott's bloody victory, all of this was supported by, quote, observation balloons, munitions dumps, camps of prefabricated Adrian barracks, altogether indicative of long preparations, a business mounted deliberately like an industrial effort, nothing improvised, every possibility anticipated. The front seems to work like a large factory, following a plan no one can derail, unquote. This offensive was indeed mounted like an industrial effort. The killing was on such a scale that it certainly made for its own industry, and its monthly reports were glowing. Between July and August, the British expeditionary force would see losses of over 250,000 men, with the French army taking some 65,000 casualties. The Germans would lose around 170,000 men in this same time frame. At this point, the front line had shifted but a couple of miles in one side's favor. But the purpose of the Somme, the brutal gutting of the German army's manpower, was beginning to tell. Morale was on the decline in many German units. I hope the cruel war is approaching its end, for one no longer has any heart for this sort of thing, noted a German soldier. But while morale may have been on the decline, for now, the Germans held on. 
All right. We'll leave it there for now. Next time, we are going up to a very high wood, I promise. So, questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at at WW1podcast. You can also go through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War page on the Facebook. Thanks again for the reviews, and thank you as always for taking the time to listen to the BFWWP. Talk to you again soon. Take care. Mm-hmm.